You're listening to a podcast of spurious morality. Welcome to a podcast of spurious morality. I'm Johnston, and this week we are here to talk about the first half of season five of Doctor Who. Um, with me, I have Jimmy. Hello. And I have Greg. Hello, everyone. And uh, so, yeah, we're, 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 we're plodding on quite nicely with our sort of season by season um, look at Doctor Who. Uh Season five already. It, it doesn't feel particularly long since we did the first one, um, but yeah, I'm enjoying these. These are good. So uh, this week's spoiler warning would be um, season five of Doctor Who. Um, so if you've if you've yet to see the Ice Warriors, um, don't bother. Actually, uh, no, no, that's not fair. Um, so yeah, it, it's we will be talking about Tomb of the Cybermen. The Abominable Snowmen, the Ice Warriors, and the Enemy of the World. Uh, and then we will pick up in a second part um, shortly after Christmas to discuss the remaining stories from the season. So let's start off by talking about which story from this season is our favourite. Do you want to go first, Jimmy? Yeah, for me, it's a pretty easy choice. I'd say. The Wheel in Space for me, a, a very close behind it is Enemy of the World, but I think with Zoe's brilliant introduction and the Cybermen, Wheel in Space has the edge for me personally. It's an absolutely great and I think actually quite often underappreciated story. Um, it's it's absolutely bonkers. There's some real uh, what we shall call david whittaker science in there but yeah absolutely great story and the cybermen at their i suppose 60s creepiest uh what about you greg i haven't finished my rewatch of the entire season yet so i reserve the right to change my mind in the next episode but right now it's enemy of the world i was blown away by it when it came back and i'm still impressed by it today I think I'm going to have to agree with you. Uh, Enemy of the World, phenomenal story. It was, I think, uh, we'll talk about this a bit more afterwards, but I think it was sort of critically underappreciated before it was rediscovered. We've talked about it on this before, how sort of the existing episode is, or the episode that did exist prior to the rest turning up was the least exciting. But... um, yeah, it's an excellent story. Um, I do think that if if it existed, if we had um, or even any of it, not so much all of it, but any of it, 
I think Fury from the Deep could perhaps give it a run for its money in terms of my favourite, but I'm able to watch the original six episodes of Enemy, whereas Fury I've just got the animation to work with. So I'm going to stick with Enemy for now. But if, when, when Fury from the Deep turns up, which I'm sh- I'm certain it will, it's definitely going to turn up, um, please. Um, I, I suspect that Fury would perhaps take over as my favourite. Uh, but the first story we're going to discuss is Tomb of the Cybermen. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's a Cyberman story that's different to the two we've had previously. When we were doing season four, we talked about how Moonbase was uh, in places a carbon copy of the Tenth Planet. Tomb of the Cybermen does something quite different with them, and I think it works. Uh, so, Jimmy, talk to us about Tomb of the Cybermen. Yeah, this is quite a mixed bag. I think in terms of the Cybermen themselves, it's a brilliant story and handles them really well, develops them really well, and it has lots of lovely moments like the whole opening scene of the um, the Doctor revealing how old he is and Jamie and Victoria being in shock and his lovely conversation with Victoria later on. But at the same time, it has some stuff that's, you know, by modern standards, pretty dodgy, like the handling of Toberman and he's basically an almost completely mute slave and, you know not very good that one of the first big roles for a black actor in the show and that's what they're doing with him and same thing with Kaftan being a villain the only woman in the cast is a baddie too I think a lot of my problems with this story would have been solved if they shuffled the casting around like maybe have Toberman the the actor who played Toberman not the character of Toberman but the actor be the guy who's in charge of the thing or have Kaftan's actress be you know, the one repairing the ship and, you know, but with the way they handled them, it was, yeah, quite a, um, quite a failing for this era and um, obviously they can't help it. That's when it was made, that's how things were then and it's a pity, but it does um, take the shine off an otherwise pretty brilliant story and, um, yeah, I think it's a great story other than those issues with it. Um Lots of weird little things I noticed when I rewatched it preparing for um, this um, podcast on it. I noticed things I've not noticed before, like they don't actually call the planet Telos, it's the city of Telos. And so I wonder whether it was actually intended to be on some other planet or maybe it was meant to be Mondas somehow or I don't know. But um, yeah, I thought it was weird that they just called the city. And um, also I quite liked but for what was weird, the Doctor, when he checks in his diary for info on Cybermats and it's there, but he'd never encountered them before. So I think that ties into what we were saying back in the Season 4 podcast about Tenth Planet that, you know, has he met them before the Tenth Planet and we don't know about it because how else does he know about the Cybermats? And so, yeah, it's quite quite an interesting story in that regard of all these strange things that I'd never really noticed before. But I, I also just love the dynamic of the Doctor and... Victoria and you know that little speech together about you know how our lives are different to anyone else and you know I think that it did it was a great introduction for her I think Victoria gets put through the ringer quite a lot over the course of this season but this is one of the few stories where she's a bit stronger and a bit more you know she uses the screaming to distract Captain but she's not really scared the second time and Stuff like that. So I think it's, yeah, quite a good story overall. But, yeah, definitely the flaws make it a bit harder to enjoy than it would have been otherwise, unfortunately. 
I'd agree with you that there definitely are some uh, problematic elements in there, but it's like you say, an absolutely cracking story. It's it it's I think it's fair to call it the best Cyberman story so far. Um, and I'm a, you know a big big fan of the Tenth Planet, but I think Tomb is definitely the Cybermen at their best uh, to this point. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on it? Well, just starting with the name of a planet, the first time we hear it said, someone actually says Telos, which is how the Greek word is pronounced, and and then it's never said that way again, and now it's just Telos. But with what I'm reading way too much into this, but I do wonder, you know, who named this planet? Because Telos is like this Aristotelian concept of like the end goal of humanity. And obviously that was an ironic name given to it by the writer, but in the fictional universe, it's kind of a unfortunate coincidence to name a planet that when it's full of cyber tombs. But um, to the story as a whole, I always have had a very soft spot for this story because it's the first black and white Doctor Who story I ever saw. When I was a kid, uh, local TV in the U.S. showed Doctor Who reruns, and my station uh, did not show the black and white stories, so I'd never seen any of them. And I had the old reference guides that were written in the late 80s that listed off all the missing episodes, and back then, Tomb of the Cybermen was like the one story that everyone wanted back because none of it existed and it was just this had this legendary reputation and then of course it was discovered in hong kong in the early 90s but because i wasn't involved in fandom i had no idea and then one day i was walking around in a video store and i saw a vhs tape the tomb of the cybermen and i almost screamed in the video store and basically ordered my father to buy it for me and then watched it and fell in love with it. And I still love this story today. It's um, it's a great introductory story for Victoria. It's probably the best story she has. Um, it really defines the relationship between the Dr. Jamie and Victoria, the supporting cast. Although like Jimmy was saying, definitely some problematic elements in the casting and the roles, the supporting cast, you know, each one is a distinct character. Their interactions make sense. Um, this it, it's easily the best Cyberman story thus far for me, as it as it avoids the repetitiveness of of the first two, and just the the imagery. I mean, the the set they built for the actual tomb, and the, the Cybermen pushing their way through the the membranes to escape the capsules. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. It's one of the best bits of set design in the 1960s run of Doctor Who, if not the whole run of the, the classic series. I like this story quite a bit. I mean, it, it, it's it's paced well. The, the direction is pretty good. And yeah, you know, that first cliffhanger is a lot worse than everyone thought it was going to be when it was just on audio. But it doesn't bother me that much. I like this one. Yeah, I I agree with you um, about pretty much everything actually, but uh, particularly the um, how how good this story looks. It, it's very visually impressive, and uh, it it does sort of go that extra mile to look fantastic. Um, other details as well, like when uh, in part four the Cyberman gets smashed up and he gets sort of like ooze it looks like shaving cream or something like that coming out of its chest and 
just looks absolutely brilliant. Um, and yeah, the the actual sort of central control room with the hatch in it as well, fantastic set. It's they've they've obviously gone above and beyond for this one, uh, and it, it it does show, and it it really does add to the story. Um, yeah, I I, I really like Team of the Cybermen. I think it's. It, it's exciting. It's it's never slow. It does stop to breathe in places. You know, we have that chat between the Doctor and Victoria, but that's it's never boring. It's never never a, um, a story that sort of fails to keep my attention for bits. It's excellent throughout, and I think the Cybermats are a good addition as well. Sort of little robots, drones that the Cybermen can send in to attack um and actually i do think they're fairly underutilized they've had is it four on-screen appearances in total um there's definitely room for more cybermat material uh let's let's move on though uh we'll move on to uh the abominable snowmen which is a story that we've uh all of us i think have been able to appreciate a little bit more uh, over the past few months because it's received an animation. Um, I was hoping that the animation would kind of make this story go up in my estimation a little bit. It's one that on audio I always found a bit plodding and there's a lot of let's leave the monastery, let's go back to the monastery, rinse and repeat. Um, I have to admit that I don't think... It has gone up in my estimations at all, really. It, it just, it's its a four-parter stuck in a six-parter's body, this one is. Um, there's plenty in there to enjoy, though. So, uh, Jimmy, what do you think of it? I think it's a pretty good story and definitely a bit of an underrated one, especially prior to the animation coming out. For me, the animations always help me enjoy the stories more because I sometimes struggle just listening without the sort of visuals. I mean... I enjoyed the big finish because it's sort of intended that way, but for the stories that were made on TV, it just feels slightly off. And so, yeah, when the animation came out, I think it helped me enjoy the story more. It didn't go up hugely in my estimations, but it did go up a little bit, definitely. And I think it was quite a good animation. And the things I really noticed in the story, um, part of them were because of that, the inconsistencies between the animation and the surviving episode. Like one of the monks... um, suddenly has glasses in all five animated episodes and doesn't have them in the one surviving one, so I'm not quite sure why they added that and just weird little things like that. Uh, Another one of the monks with the scar, I think on... It it was hard to tell for certain, but I think in one shot for just a second they must have reversed the image and he had it on the wrong side of his face. But, you know, odd little things like that that they've stuffed up in the animation um, do detract a bit, but... Otherwise, it made the story much more enjoyable to see. And, um, yeah, yeah, I think it was an interesting setting, the sort of monastery and the sort of stuff it sets up for Web of Fear later on and all that. I um, One thing I also noticed was with recently Big Finish doing that prequel um, with the first Doctor Early Adventures, it does throw up a bit of an inconsistency and discontinuity because when... Um, Padma Sambhava sees the Doctor and he says, it is good to look upon your face again. Um, 
you've got to assume that the doctor he met before was Troughton, but of course they've changed that and he's met Hartnell now. And so, yeah, just, just a weird little discontinuity there. It's, I'm surprised the writers didn't think to, you know, work around it. But yeah, the story in and of itself is, yeah, thoroughly enjoyable. I really liked it. I do think you're right that it's a bit long, but for me, it doesn't outstay its welcome. No, it, it's, it definitely does sort of have its its strong moments. Just I have always found it, it just drags on a little bit, really. Um, I also think that while they're visually fantastic, uh, I'm not that huge a fan of the Yeti as, as a villain, sort of robot Yetis. It's, they're, they're fairly disposable, and I think they're actually given a sort of grander, a grander um, reputation by fandom than they deserve. But the whole concept behind them, I guess, the great intelligence and that kind of thing is is pretty fantastic. Uh, Greg, what do you think of it? Well, um, the animation just came out uh, over here uh, five days ago by this recording, but I have had a chance to watch it. And it did change the story a bit for me in my estimation. Um, this is an interesting one for me because... I don't think it should work as well as it does. I recognize all of the, the difficulties with it. I mean, the plot is basically just running up and down the mountain a few times. It's definitely, you know, this, this base under siege concept, which this season really embraces and the monastery being the, the base in this situation, the, the Yeti look pretty ridiculous and, don't really seem to pose much of a threat. I mean, maybe if we actually had the footage of them ripping down the statue of the Buddha, it would look better, but I doubt it. It's it's not that exciting, but the atmosphere of it really salvages the whole story. It has this, this, this creepy, almost sense of dread hangs over it. The... The, the unification of the, 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 the philosophy of the monks with the, the great intelligence is, is interesting. Like there's just enough twists in the plot to keep you watching. I, I think it, it, it works more than it doesn't, almost in spite of itself. One other thing that I noticed too was, and again, we only have episode two existing, but we were talking about problematic casting in Tomb of the Cybermen. You know, obviously, when you're telling a story here with Tibetan characters, you would like to have, you know, actors resembling the ethnicity of the people they're playing. But it's all white actors cast here. But at least from the second episode, from what we can see, they're basically all just white guys dressed as monks. You know, thankfully, there doesn't appear to be any yellow face. You know, no one has their eyes taped back or anything horrible like that. And what I like about the animation is it just dispenses with that entirely and just animates the characters as though they are Tibetan, which I think tells the story the way it's supposed to be told. And I, I know some people who are purists might disagree with that, but I, I think the decision they took artistically in the animation to do it that way was, was very good. Um, yeah, so Abominable Snowman, solid story. I enjoy it. Not the best, but... That's good. Uh, it's interesting you raised the point about how the animation actually made the monks Tibetan because uh, I remember reading quite a long time ago now is when DVD animations were 
um, sort of happening fairly regularly. That uh, the main reason they wouldn't do the crusade was they weren't quite sure how to do it because obviously the crusade has actors in blackface. So do you do you animate them as they're supposed to look or as they do look in the serial? So I'm glad that they've kind of made a definitive decision on this, and it means that I can hold out hope that one day uh, the crusade will be animated or the missing episodes will be. Um, I definitely hope they animate it. I think this the best thing about this release was that it set that precedent, as you say, because I, I, I've always been a huge fan of the Heart and Lear, and I think The Crusade is a story that's very underrated, and I think it would definitely help its reputation if it's got an animation as good as this one. So, yeah, I'm definitely with you on hoping that happens sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, fingers crossed for that one, definitely. But like, like we say, that precedent is now set, and it, it's perhaps answered a question that was tricky ten years ago, whatever it was when they were when they were doing animations for DVD. Um let's move on then. Next story. Uh it's it's one that I want to like. It's one that there's definitely some great ideas in, there's some really great monsters in. But it just despite having so much going for it as a story, it just doesn't do it for me. And that's the Ice Warriors. Did, did you provide that noise originally when they were making it? <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was pitch perfect, Greg. Um, yeah, the Ice Warriors. I, I, the, there are so many good things in this story. You know, the Ice Warriors themselves, performances, uh, yeah, Clint is one of the the greatest performances Doctor Who's ever seen. Uh, Peter Salis is excellent in it as well. It's you know nice to see him in Doctor Who. Um, so many good ideas, and it just it just doesn't seem to gel for me. Um, so we'll we'll see if you guys are the same. Jimmy, you go first. Yeah, I definitely have to say it's the poorest story of the season, unfortunately, and um, that does say something about how good the quality of this season is overall, but at the same time, it's um, yeah, it's a shame that this story doesn't really live up to the potential it had. I think the Ice Warriors are handled pretty well, and I mean, they obviously went down pretty well for um, the next story, the next season, to bring them back so soon, but the story itself just doesn't really... Oh, I don't know, it's hard to expect, but I don't think it really works for me that much. I think they tried a bit too hard in trying to make a huge difference. I mean, I love that um, they actually go for, you know, different costumes and things don't just look like the present. That was always one of my bugbears with um, the Russell T Davies era. It's like, oh, it's the year 200,000, but everyone's wearing modern clothes. But I think they went a bit too far to the other extreme and the clothes in this are just plain weird looking and not very plausible and... They sort of did the same thing with the society and the whole humans versus computers thing and they're sort of acting like the computers are all logical and yet for some reason the computer supposedly, I don't know, almost has emotions or something. It it doesn't want itself to be destroyed so it stalls for time. It just doesn't really make much sense. I think they, yeah, I think they handled the whole central dynamic of, oh, humanity versus computers. I think they sort of mishandled it and didn't really you know, deal with it in the right way and didn't really make it believable. And so 
yeah, I definitely think that's a shame. But, um, yeah, it's a pity that this story wasn't better. It's, as I said, the Ice Warriors themselves get a great introduction and get handled pretty well. But, yeah, other than that, I, I didn't find the guest cast as good as you seem to. I think that it was a good performance, but the characters didn't really appeal that much and especially the um, the guy, um, I forget the character's name, but the the one in hiding who's, as every time you mention anything and he's like, oh, it's science, it's terrible, like oh, a weapon, oh, a scientific weapon, like, okay, you, you're complaining that it's not a rock or a stick. I mean, it got a bit ridiculous, quite frankly, but, yeah, I think it's a shame that it didn't really handle the regulars that well either. I mean, it didn't mishandle them, it didn't do much bad with them it just didn't really utilize them to their full extent it didn't really make the most of them and so yeah it's a bit of a letdown for me unfortunately it's definitely uh not a great story for victoria she seems to spend the majority of it locked up or failing to escape from being locked up um and the doctor seems to be a prisoner for a good chunk of the story as well so yeah i'd agree the regulars don't get that good a run um oh jamie's paralyzed for a chunk of it as well isn't he so um yeah they they're sidelined but i don't really see what they're sidelined for there's nothing else going on apart from the sort of computer drama in inverted commas uh greg go ahead yeah i'm pretty much on board here i i don't know why this isn't better. Now, I just said about Abominable Snowmen that it's better than the sum of its parts, whereas Ice Warriors, I think, is considerably worse than the sum of its parts. This should work, right? You're introducing this new alien menace who are visually impressive um, in their design. Um, they're from Mars, which is just a very interesting dynamic to establish with humanity. You've got Really good direction, I think. Again, really good set design. You've got themes. You've got something that the story wants to be about, you know, about humanity versus technology. It should be better than it is, but it's just not. I mean, like like Jimmy was saying, the the, the scientific debate such as it is is so simplistic and, and so over the top here that it takes the doctor who historically has always been, you know, a bit mistrustful of computers being allowed to run things. And here sounds like a Luddite basically, which is not in character for him at all. I mean, he flies around the universe in an incredibly scientifically advanced time machine. Um, that doesn't work for me. Yeah, the, the characters just aren't used well. The There's no subtlety in the supporting characters. They're all fanatics in one direction or another. The ice warriors, first of all, when they're moving around, don't look very good, even though they're certainly imposing when they're standing still. And secondly, they just don't feel like that much of a, of a threat, like the story's trying to set up where both the humans and the ice warriors are kind of under attack from each other, but that doesn't come off. And it's just 
boring. It's six episodes long and they just go back and forth between three different locations. There's no comprehension of how far apart these things are. It feels like they're all just like literally next to each other in a studio, which of course they were. And it, the, as we said, the companions don't do anything. The doctor basically is just in the background, like pushing people's buttons and manipulating, but to no particular end. It doesn't work. The The scene where Victoria is running away from the ice warrior in the cave looks nice, though. So there's that. that it is a nice looking cave, but I'm just... I'm not convinced by it as a chase sequence because Victoria seems to stop running every five steps so the Ice Warrior can catch up. There's no tension in it at all. It is just Victoria wandering through a cave with an Ice Warrior lumbering on behind her. And it's not even one of the good Ice Warriors. It's the costume that that went wrong when they were making it. Um, so it doesn't look as good as the others and... It, it just completely falls flat as a sequence. There's no no drama in there at all. Um, if you're running away from an alien monster that wants to take you prisoner, you run. You don't stop around every corner and check to see if it's still following you. Of course it is. You know, one other thing I wanted to, to, to say, too, is that this story uses title cards which is something that's happened a few times now in the 60s, the War Machines, the Tenth Planet. You know, we'll see it again in the War Games. We'll see it again as far forward as Inferno. And I just, I wonder why they just decided to do title cards for just the a few stories throughout the 60s and early 70s and then for the most part didn't and then stopped and never did it again. I don't know, just something that interested me. I'm glad they did though because it gave us the ambassadors of Twang Death. Um, which is the most bizarre of all the title cards, really, because it's just a cut back to the theme. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's, I mean, they're nice title cards as well. It's a nice sequence. Uh, and With that beautiful music, you know? And beautiful music. And we get it again in the next Ice Warrior story. We get it in Seeds of Death as well. And the uh, the ones in Seeds of Death are actually used fairly cleverly because um, you because the action switches between the earth and the moon, the one you see in the title card is actually where the action that immediately follows it is set. So if the cliffhanger is on the moon, it's the moon's surface. If the cliffhanger is on earth, it's the earth that we see. Um, so I, two very sort of creative uses of the not used often enough title card. Um but yeah, it's it it is interesting. It, it's sort of fascinating that they decided to do it. There doesn't seem to be any particular link. It's not a certain director that does it or anything like that. It just it's just something they did occasionally. Um, of course, if anyone's listening and knows the story of the title cards, please do tweet at us. We're we, we're curious now. Um. So the last story we're going to discuss uh, on this episode is, as we've all said, absolutely brilliant. And uh, it just shows that actually being able to to see the story and watch it really does make a difference. Uh, It's the previously underappreciated enemy of the world. And I have to admit, I always liked this one. Um, even before it was rediscovered 
and we only had that one episode in the audio. I thought the audio was absolutely fantastic. Um, it's very, very, very James Bond inspired, and I do like the Bond films. Um, it, it's it, it's Doctor Who does Bond, and it's Doctor Who does Bond very, very well. Um, there's a lot to love in here. Yeah, you know, some great performances, great characters, and Patrick Troughton in two roles. He plays the Doctor, and he plays Salamander. So, Jimmy, talk to us about the Enemy of the World. Yeah, this is a brilliant story, and I think. The recovery definitely helped it get re- the reevaluation it so strongly deserved. I really love it. If it weren't for the wheel, it'd be my favourite story of the season, and not by an insignificant margin. Um, Troughton is amazing in both his roles, and especially when he's playing one, playing the other. When it's the Doctor pretending to be Salamander or Salamander pretending to be the Doctor, he excels. He like he plays them all so differently, and he plays them all so well, and. I think it's just an absolute powerhouse performance and I'm so glad that it survives now and that it's got that re-evaluation. I think it's a great story in its own right too. I love the dynamic and the whole earthbound sort of almost proto-unit sort of format of it all being on earth, all being more tied to reality. It's a bit funny seeing the whole the um, number plate on the plane and, oh, it's the distant future of 2018 where all the world's united. It's, uh, yeah, of course, that's a bit of of an inaccurate prediction, unfortunately, but um, I just think it's such a good story. I can look past that. I think it's got such a great dynamic and some great lines. I love the whole part when early on, I forget which companion it is, but they say something about, oh, it's a must, I think it was Victoria. Oh, it must be a world of madmen. And the doctor's like, oh yeah, it is a world of human beings. And which is a pretty nice uh, call. And the funny line later on in the story about the disused Yeti, which, you know, nice little back reference and forward reference setting up for the web of fear. And um, contrary to earlier in the season in Tomb of the Cybermen, I think Faria gets an excellent guest role like yes she is put in the sort of servant role but she gives a powerful performance and one of the best guest cast in the era I think she really shines and I think yeah such a great character and so good to see her handled so much better than those earlier stories and yeah another thing I love is the the dynamic of the Doctor and Jamie I didn't really mention but in Tomb of the Cybermen those funny scenes where they accidentally hold hands trying to help Victoria and sort of look disgusted at each other and they have the laugh and the comment about her dress not being that short oh look at Jamie's and you can definitely see why the dynamic is so popular and I think it was very funny when they're talking about Salamander and the Doctor's like oh and he's remarkably handsome don't you think Jamie and looks up it and sees what Jamie thinks and I mean, I'm surprised they got away with it for the sort of conservatism of the 60s because that bit was just so gay and I loved it. Absolutely brilliant. I love the companion dynamic between Jamie and the second Doctor and it's so nice that they pushed the boundaries and got that sort of stuff on screen. I'm amazed they got away with it and I'm so glad they did. I think in terms of pushing boundaries, this is absolutely the most ambitious Doctor Who story so far um, you know the, there are big action sequences, there are helicopters and hoverboats and um, just having Patrick Troughton come face to face with Patrick Troughton in the final episode it was apparently very very difficult to film on the limitations of 
uh, you know, or well, 60s and the technology they had and the time they had. Um, and I have to admit that there is, at some points, the experimentation maybe doesn't work as well as it does. That last scene does feel a little bit strange and clunky and it, it's very obviously heavily edited, which Doctor Who wasn't at all back then. They certainly managed it better than they did when um, Hartnell had to face the robot doctor in the chase and I think it definitely shows how far the technology and the production had come in just a few years that they pulled it off that much better this time round. And it, it's, it is a point actually, it, this story is completely unrecognisable from the from what we saw in On an Earthly Child in the first season. If you think that this is only four years later than something clunky and studio-bound like the Sensorites. Um, it, it, it's huge and it's ambitious and uh, there's, there's definitely a reason that Barry Letzel was considered to be a pioneer. You can really see that the boat is being pushed out for this and it, it's it, it's just excellent. It's It's a visually fantastic story. In fact, all the stories that we've uh, discussed so far for this season are visually fantastic. But I think this one, even though it doesn't have the obvious advantage of a memorable monster design, it nevertheless still looks absolutely brilliant. And it's it's believable as the not too distant future, the sort of 50 years in the future thing. Um it it's it's absolutely great uh greg go ahead what interests me about the, the differences between this and, and tomb of the cybermen uh stories that were discovered is that people had this impression of tomb in their heads as being this just absolutely staggeringly impressive science fiction epic and then it was discovered and I mean, for the budget they had and what they were doing, I think the set design in Tomb is excellent, but I still think there was generally a letdown because it just didn't look as good as what people had built up in their minds. Here, so much of this story is action-driven that reconstructions just can't do it proper justice. I mean, I, I recognize that this was a good story from the recon, but seeing it for the first time, I mean, just the sheer amount of budget on display, helicopters hovercrafts it's from the first episode on it's it's just it's it's so different and, and as you were saying Barry Letts directing this does such a good job i mean there's so many innovative things here like there's they use rear projection on multiple occasions there's even a a, a cool shot where when they're sitting on the park bench we have the the rear projection of the park behind them and they actually film Jamie walking towards the camera and then cut back to the bench and then pan over and there he is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's crude obviously, but it, for Dr. Who in this period, it's, it's really fun to see this kind of artistic invention on screen. Um, it's also, uh, as you said, a, a showcase for Patrick Troughton. Um, granted his accent isn't the greatest. It sounds like he was just listening to Eli Wallach and kind of doing an impression of, 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 of that, but generally speaking, though, it's, it's, it's a powerhouse performance because you really see how much of his doctor is an acting choice. Like even just how his posture changes when he's playing Salamander versus when he's playing the doctor. And, and I think the, the moment that really illustrates it is 
how he plays right at the end salamander on the beach and when he briefly pretends to be the doctor walking into the TARDIS. And, and he, you can see he's playing a character who is doing an impression of his other character. And it's different from just playing him as the doctor. And Troughton was a, was a, was a very underrated performer. One of the, one of the best ever in, in the role. And you can really see why in this story, but yeah, just in general, it's so good. It's it's so well paced. Like the the revelation that Salamander is keeping a whole colony of people underground, like that just comes out of nowhere and blows the story open. It 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 really only drags a little bit in episode three. And even there, you have the chef who's just one of the best single episode characters the Doctor Who ever did. I, I I love Griff. I would I would watch a whole mini series with him in his kitchen with just the world ending around him. And yeah, that was fantastic. But I mean, yeah, like th- this one just really works well. My um my wife loves Doctor Who, like the the revived you know since two thousand and five series. But usually when I'm watching the classic show, she goes in another room. But this one, she just saw me watching episode one, sat down, watched the whole thing straight through, and said it was fantastic. And I mean, it's, 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 it feels fresh, modern, compelling. It's a great story. It's one of the best Troughton stories. And at least so far, it's my favorite of this season. Uh, before we started recording this, I said that um, uh, Monster of Peladon is one of the few six-parters that actually benefits from you just binging it, watching it in one go. Uh, this is the same. Enemy of the World is, it, it, it's a film. And it, it should be watched as a film. It should be watched all six episodes at once. It just works so well. Um, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I could keep praising it uh, until the cows come home. Alas, time time is a thing and we have run out of it uh, for this one. So uh, we will return and we will discuss the rest of season five in the not too distant future. Um, we've got christmas to get out of the way first but we'll be back with part two in january and we'll talk about the remaining stories of this season and we'll uh, look a little bit more at victoria as well we'll talk about victoria a tad more but in the meantime uh, i will say goodbye and thank you to jimmy thanks can't wait to continue on to the rest of the season with you guys and goodbye and thank you to greg Always a pleasure and can't wait for part two. Yeah, we've uh, we've got Web Affair to discuss at the start of the next one, which I'm looking forward to. Um, and Fury from the Deep, excellent story. And Wheel in Space, excellent story. So yeah, lots to look forward to. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll be back for some more spodcasting soon. Goodbye now. <laughs> <laughs>